of all the difficulties, struggles, and sorrows of the year 2020, perhaps the worst, perhaps even beyond the sickness and physical suffering and even the death, was the separation that people experienced from one another. The separation between even husband and wife, between a, a person and their aged parents wanting so badly to be there for and with someone, but not able to be present. We even have those among our own number who were separated from one another, husband and wife, and had to visit over the screen of an iPad or through a foggy window talking on the phone and longing, longing to be back together. Well, we thank God that at this time people can visit one another again and be together again. But I think even from that sorrow and that struggle and that sadness, we can draw a lesson for how we ought to long for our God and His presence. That we should, like a husband and wife separated from one another, longing to be together, long as the bride for the presence of our bridegroom. Long to, as we read in verse 17 of our passage today, Behold the king in his beauty. To see him not as we do now, through a glass darkly, and perhaps if there's any fitting picture of through a glass darkly, it's through a Zoom call on a tablet, right? But rather to see him face to face, to hear his voice not stuttering with the lag of overused Wi-Fi, but to hear his voice crisp and clean saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And to long even for his presence here and now in this life as much as we can experience it. Well, the background of our text today is actually a, a really bad year. Worse than 2020 if you live in Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 18, we read about what was going on. King Hezekiah, a righteous king, had made a treaty with Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians. The agreement was a normal one. In exchange for a large payment, the Assyrians would withdraw from Jerusalem and leave them alone. Being, of course, a scoundrel, to put it lightly, Sennacherib broke the treaty not long after he received and pocketed the payment, and then he returned the Assyrian army to Jerusalem to besiege it, unless more payments were made, which they didn't have the money to make, and of course, we see through even the beginning of this chapter that Sennacherib will be unmovable. There won't be a treaty. There won't be mercy. There will only be siege, warfare, suffering, and ultimately destruction. Hezekiah knows this is a losing situation because he knows what the Assyrians did just 20 years earlier to the northern kingdom of Israel. Right? He essentially erased 10 of the 12 tribes of God's people from the face of the earth. And so Hezekiah puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was an unusual thing for a king to do. A king should be seen, it was thought, in his royal robes, standing firm and strong and brave no matter what happens. But here we see him in mourning clothes. We see him weeping. We see him turning to God. And in this chapter, we read the prayers of the prophet in verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. The prayer continues through verse 9, and then in verse 10, we hear its answer. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. 
Now, if you take notes in your Bible, you may want to note that every time the word I is used there, it's emphatic. That means maybe underline it. Maybe it ought to be in italics. The way that they did emphatic in Hebrew, just like in Greek, is that those languages, not unlike Spanish, have built into a verb who's doing it, right? You, you've learned a little Spanish, right? Bailo, I dance. Bailamos, we dance. But if I say, yo bailo, it doesn't mean I dance, it means I dance. I mean, I don't dance, but I don't know that many verbs in Spanish. But like, it's saying, I myself, I'm the one who dance. And here, God is saying, I, I will now arise. I will lift myself up. I will be exalted. And three times he says the word now. Now, at this time, I myself will arise. Now is the time when I will lift myself up. Now is the time when I myself will be exalted. Now, while the Assyrians at their strongest are marching into my holy city, judging what plunder they'll take now, I myself will plunder and judge the plunderers. A moment ago, there was no hope. The king was in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I, Yahweh, will do what they cannot do and will be glorified. In verse 11, the Lord begins this sort of holy trash talk to the Assyrians. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the people will be, will be as if burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Wow, that's harsh. Chaff and stubble, these are pictures of vanity, nothingness. You know, this is chaff you'd throw up into the wind and it would be carried away. And if by some chance you were able to gather it together, you'd just take a shovel full of it and throw it into the fire to burn. And it would only heat you and, and, and burn for a moment before it was just gone. Or in verse 12, that they will be burned as with lime. A, a lime kiln is one that could burn up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And to put a body into such a fire was a method of thoroughly desecrating the dead in the ancient Near East. Amos condemns the Moabites for doing this to the king of Edom and, and burning their bodies to dust. So we have four images in a row, all meaning your destruction will be complete and it's coming very quickly. And the response reminds me very much of Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These Assyrians thought of Israel as insignificant, stubble to be burned away, chaff to toss into the wind, but they will be the chaff. They're just dust, and the mighty God of Israel has a big old can of pledge. Maybe that's over the top with the trash talk, but maybe not, because where does the prophet go next but to start talking about Sennacherib's breath? Hmm? Your breath is, oh, it's not that it's bad, it's that his, his breath will consume him. It's a fire that will consume him. Now, you may have a, a note there in your Bible that the word breath is the word ruach in the Hebrew. It means spirit as well. The meaning here is that the spirit of Sennacherib's anger and arrogance and ambition, which he means to be a fire, a literal fire, in besieging the city, a fire that will, will 
kindle and burn hotter and hotter as he, as he feeds it with his breath of anger in order to devour Jerusalem will now turn around and devour him. This is a frequently repeated theme in the book of Proverbs. That the one who lays a trap for the righteous will then fall into the trap. Or look at the book of Esther and see what happens to Haman when he is hung on his own gallows. This is the kind of judgment that God will bring on his enemies as he comforts his people. In verse 13, we're told that those who are near in Israel and those who are far off and far-flung nations will hear of and speak of this great deliverance. And you may remember what happened, how God did deliver his people. It's recounted to us in 2 Kings 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Ademelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. Not even by fleeing back home to a far-flung empire could this king escape the wrath of God. God's judgment of Israel's enemies, we see in verse 14, would be so complete that even impious Israelites would be filled with fear. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? The King James Version uses the word hypocrites here twice. The word means godless or rebellious or, or something to that effect. But hypocrites is a good translation, especially since it's a word that Jesus would later coin to mean one who pretends to be one thing while being another. This description of false believers amidst the elect people, which will continue even into the church age. Remember Jesus' parable about the one who comes into the wedding feast without a wedding garment, a wedding crasher, and is grabbed by the wedding bouncers, and they say, how did you get in here? And he's speechless, and they throw him out. Well, these who are professing believers amid God's people who do not truly believe don't trust God's promises. So first they fear the fire that's coming when the Assyrians light their city ablaze, but then seeing the mighty work of God, these posers are given pause and asked, are we truly ready to stand before him? Are we truly ready or with the kings of the nations? Will we fall and hide from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who can stand? As these hypocrites look out and see God's judgment on the Gentiles, they can say to themselves, at least the Assyrians can plead ignorance. This is not their God. This is a foreign God to them. We have known him. We've been taught about him. The outward peace that hypocrites profess but never really possess melts away when it comes face to face with the might of God. 
This is not just an Old Testament notion, by the way. Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. The very same uh, picture that we see in verse 11. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. God will turn the fire that should have been kindled against Jerusalem back against his enemies. If Yahweh's wrath can burn through such a vast army in one night... These hypocrites say to one another, who could endure it forever? An eternal burning. By the way, we see here then the idea of eternal punishment. It's been very popular lately for people to, to suggest that when Jesus talks again and again and again about hell, that he's just kind of using the Pharisees' language to refute them. Because you never find it in the Old Testament. It pops up out of nowhere. Well, you do find it in the Old Testament if you read it and read it carefully. And today, reading the scriptures can even create this sort of terror for someone who is outside of God's grace that seeing this judgment did in that day. And yet it also can bring about great peace of mind and peace of heart. And that's what we see in verse 15. In great contrast to these hypocrites who say, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? In verse 15 we read, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. All of these things are things that would be up in the air during a siege. Water would get short supply. Bread would run out quickly. And, and a, a good defense against the enemy would slowly be torn down. But that will not be the case for the upright. Here is a description of the upright man or woman whose thoughts, words, and deeds are precisely what honors God at every turn. First of all, he walks and speaks in righteousness. Secondly, he hates oppression and even the profit that he might gain from it. And third, he will not take any part in wickedness, not with his eye or his ear or his hand. When we read of them, the, the righteous stopping up their ears or shutting their eyes to evil, it is not a, a picture like you see with the three monkeys or one of them like this, one of them's like this, and see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, as if one is sticking his head in the sand and being completely apathetic to what is going on around him. Rather, he'll not entertain an evil scheme. He won't hear of it. No one would dare to come to him and say, why don't we go and shed innocent blood because they know that this is not something he will hear. He'll rebuke them. He won't see evil because he does not desire to see evil. In Mark 9, Jesus says about the same thing. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. God's kingdom was always for transformed people. And so we read here about two different responses to the might of God and the judgment poured out on his enemies. God's kingdom was always for those whose appetites are being changed by his spirit and his renewing power so that we no longer wish to see and hear and take part in evil. We do not wish to, to pretend to take part in evil. I wonder about people who are very obsessed with video games in which they kill and steal and rape and murder and then say, oh, I don't think it's a big deal. It's not real. My, my mentor, Ed Pikey, used to have a, a little folded in half kind of sandwich board 
cardstock sign that he had printed up on his television. You can tell how long this was ago because televisions were deep enough you could sit something on them. But it said, I will put no worthless thing before my eyes. And it had the uh, reference to that verse in Job about a covenant with one's eyes. This is the upright here, avoiding every appearance of evil. By the way, that that verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 is often misused. Avoiding the appearance of evil, we take it often to mean don't look like you might be doing evil. This is why fundamentalist churches will often say don't go to a a movie house because someone might think you're there to see something very bad even if you're there to see Peter Rabbit or something. You've got to avoid the appearance of evil. That's not what that verse is saying. and That's not what that word means in the Greek. The appearance of evil means every form of evil. Anytime evil appears, avoid it. Keep your eyes away from it. Keep yourself away from it. Don't be there. The the, the funny thing about Quakers is that they used to be mocked for not being willing to take an oath in in a court of law because of their religious convictions, and yet we read that they almost never were asked to because they almost never were witnesses to any crimes because they kept themselves away from every appearance of evil. They said, if evil's going to happen somewhere, I'll be somewhere else. That's the wisdom of God. My mother used to quote her grandmother in saying, if you make plans to enjoy evil, evil will surely be there. I looked that up to see where that came from just this past week and couldn't find it. So I guess my great-grandmother must have made it up. She was more sage than I thought. But certainly, it is true. And if we make plans conversely to avoid evil, we can trust that God will help us to do so. There in verse 16, we read about how the one who has built upon the rock, as Jesus puts it, has the high ground, the stronghold, has provisions to wait out this demonic siege that is always coming upon us. These are the ones, the upright, who will see the king in his beauty here in verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. You will see a land that stretches afar. Now, of course, the immediate fulfillment here was about King Hezekiah. He had taken off his royal robes and put on these garments of mourning made of sackcloth. Your eyes will see your king now back in his royal robes, now anointed with oil once again, now in control and full of glory as he should be as God's anointed king. But this has always been viewed as a messianic text pointing forward to a greater king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And when you think about that, Going from sackcloth and ashes and the the garments of mourning to, once again, the promise that you will see your king in his beauty, it is imbued with new meaning when we think about its fulfillment in Christ. We indeed saw our king in clothes of mourning when he was here in our midst. Even more, his garments were torn off of him. His flesh was torn. His beard ripped out. He was mocked and beaten and spat upon and nailed to a cross, and there he hung until he died for our sins. And yet the promise was always there. The apostles always forgot it, because every time he brought it up, he would say, the, the Son of Man must be denied, and he must be uh, persecuted by the, the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, and he will be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they would say, shh, don't talk about that. 
But then when he died, they forgot that he said on the third day rise again. The only two who seem to even think about it before it happens are these two guys who are on the way to uh, Emmaus. And even they probably only really thought about it after they started hearing the rumors. But the promises have been there and they remain for us that we will see our king as John saw him on Patmos. When he said his feet were like burning bronze and his eyes a flame of fire. And he described him in glory. A king in his beauty. And it's such a good thing that he went into the sackcloth and ashes. That he endured what he did for us because without we would never be able to stand before him. That description of the one who is upright, the one who walks and speaks in righteousness, hates oppression, will not take any part in wickedness, keeps his eyes, his ears, his hand completely clean. That doesn't describe any of us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We look at Psalm 15 and see David recognizing this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Does this describe David himself? No, not in the least. He does not slander with his tongue, does not do evil to his neighbor, does not take up a, a reproach against his friend. Uh, I'm afraid Uriah the Hittite uh, would like to... <laughs> voices opposition to the idea that maybe this describes David. Of course not. No, he's fallen into sin, and he knows it. Read Psalm 51. Or look at Psalm 24, 3 to 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This does not describe us, but because of Christ's death on our behalf, it describes our standing before God. It describes who we become because of Jesus' suffering. Because he put on not only the garment of a servant and got down and washed our feet, but put on the, the garments of mourning and was nailed to a cross, we will see him in his beauty. And in verse 17, it goes on to tell us that from that height, where we are secure in the stronghold, the eye can see as far as it can, and everything that it can see is under the rule of the anointed king. For those who were shut up in Jerusalem and talk about feeling claustrophobic, being shut up during a siege, knowing all your resources were slowly running out, was one of the worst things people endured in the ancient world. But they are looking forward to a time when the land is no longer shut up, but wide open. The, the reopening of Israel, if you will. No longer sheltering in place. They will be able to go to the far corners of the promised land. Now, it hadn't happened yet, but looking forward to the promises of God often helps. As does looking back. And he says, when these things happen, you will be looking back. Verse 18, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? In the King James, it says, where is the scribe? And that is perhaps a better translation, although the one who counts also fits. But, but the scribes, the military scribes, were very important in the Assyrian army. Unlike the Egyptians, they actually kept accurate records. They didn't say, oh yeah, that battle, we won it. 
Oh, that battle that we lost? We won it huge and then write it all down in stone. No, they, they kept very good records when they were there. In just about every military relief that we have of the Assyrians, you see two scribes representing two witnesses to this stuff, writing down everything, counting the cattle and the gold and the spoil that they received, counting how many heads of slain enemies the king was sent Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? This is the one who weighs the tribute paid to the Assyrians. He's not around. His job doesn't bring him to Jerusalem anymore. Where is the one counting the towers? This is the one assessing the weak points of the city and the strengths of the city and deciding where to put the military might. No need for the Assyrians to have any of these people around because that is in the past, or it will be. Sweet is the recollection of dangers that are past, the poet says. We were at a baseball game last night and watched fireworks. The night before, we went and saw, so Cal and I went and saw Barb's band playing uh, at Lake Lansing Park and all these things. I thought, man, it is so nice to have people able to gather together again and to enjoy just the community and the fellowship that one can have, even to just be near people and to look back and remember the dangers that are past and to return thanks for them. And then in verse 20, We read the description of the peace and security that will result in Jerusalem itself. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Or some translations, the city of our solemnities. To me, that strikes me as as more poetic and more beautiful. The city of our solemnities. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken." The city of our solemnities. There's so many ways they could have framed Jerusalem. The capital of our empire. The strongest city that we have. The stronghold that we would would hope would hold off the enemy. But no, the city of our appointed feasts. That's the most important thing. Writing on this text, Matthew Henry says, In times of public danger, of great illness or pestilence, our concern should be most about our religion. And the cities of our solemnities should be dearer to us than either our strong cities or our store cities. Meaning that when difficult times come, rather than rushing out to stockpile teepee, we ought to be thinking about praying together for the good of God's people. And if we have new appetites, if we are transformed people, then chief among these should be that we long to see the king in his beauty. And not just to glimpse him or to see him through a glass darkly. You there? Hold on, I don't have a signal. But to see him more and more. Spurgeon said, the more you know about Christ, the less will you be satisfied with superficial views of him. I think many Christians have superficial views of Jesus because they do not know much about him and they do not know him well, and yet they can know him as deeply as they want to. They have access. Always find satisfaction in Christ, but never be satisfied with how clearly you see him or how deeply you know him. The more deeply we know him, the more confident we can be to not only stand firm, as we've been reading about in Ephesians 6, but stand calm and confident at peace in the face of trials and temptations, of dangers and difficulties. And we can know him more fully and see him more clearly, even than the people who knew him and saw him with their eyes while he walked the earth, because we have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit illuminating the word to us and and revealing truth to us. 
When we see Jesus coming on the waves, we don't need for him to say, do not be afraid, it is I. We know it's him. We've read the tales and we've, we've experienced his faithfulness. Seeing those flames of God's judgment, the hypocrites asked each other, who could possibly stand in this fire? Fall on us, caves and mountains, hide us. Compare that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Not with the, the threat of fire surrounding them, but in the fire. They said defiantly to the king, we know our God can save us, and probably he will, but either way, we will not bow down to your statue. It's not happening. We worship one God, the true God. And when they were so calm in the face of the fire, what happened? The king looked in and said, wait a minute, I threw three guys in. How are there four? And one of them looks like a son of God. Because the king of kings was their friend, not their enemy. And they knew this. So they could be calm in the face of even certain death. We are, are friends with the king of kings. He invites us to his table to commune with him. For us, the Old Testament image of fire resonates not as punishment only, but also as protection for his people. And that is also a meaning of the symbol of fire in the Old Testament. Remember when the Egyptians were coming down on God's people as they were coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. What happened? A wall of fire separated them. On one side, that wall meant judgment is looming. On the other side, it meant God is protecting us because he is faithful. And yet even David feared God's judgments. Psalm 119, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Into the New Testament, Acts 5.11, you remember after Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, we read, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. For us, though, who are friends of the High King, for us who long to see the king in his beauty more and more and clearer and clearer and know him more and more deeply, fear of judgment should cause us to flee to Christ as our refuge. Knowing that this description of the one in the stronghold whose water is sure and whose bread is supplied daily is a description of us. Our king in his beauty and glory and splendor is our salvation. Just look at how this passage ends in verse 22. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And notice that the hypocrites in the city, they didn't decide to be hypocrites. No one ever does that. No one ever says, I want to be a hypocrite when I grow up. Or, you know what, why don't I just start pretending that I'm this way, but be another way. No, what happened is that they were bewitched by other things. They found beauty in other things, lesser things. They were distracted by other things, and God slowly drifted from the center of their, their love, their heart. Their heart grew cold, let me read in Revelation chapter 3. Augustine wrote about this in his Confessions. He came to faith later in life after kind of pushing it off and pushing it off. That famous prayer, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Lord, give me purity, but not yet. Lord, I want to believe, but eh, i got some other wild oats to sow. And then after he came to faith, he said this, I have learned to love you late. Beauty at once so ancient and so new. I have learned to love you late. You were within me, and I was in the world outside myself. 
I searched for you outside myself, and disfigured as I was, I fell upon the lovely things of your creation. The beautiful things of this world kept me from you, and yet, if they had not been in you, they would have no being at all. It was you then, O Lord, who made them, but they are not beautiful and good as you are beautiful and good, nor do they have their being as you, the Creator, have your being. In comparison with you, they have neither beauty nor goodness nor being at all. Only Jesus can give us true satisfaction. Are you longing to see the King in His beauty, to see Him more and more clearly, to commune with Him more and more closely? If not, you can pray that you will have that desire. And this is a prayer that God will answer. We who come to the table and participate in the body and blood of Jesus Christ can commune with God anywhere. He hears our prayers. He longs for us to long for Him. He is a God who is a great King, and yet He is not above us so that He's separate from us. Rather, He dwells in our midst. And when we cry out to Him, we have this promise. He is our King, and He will save us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would long more and more to see You in Your beauty, to see Your glory, to have Your glory manifest in our midst, that, Lord, we would be a stage upon which you could display your splendor, your glory, that, that everything that we do and think and say would be more and more pointed toward lifting you up, that we would decrease, that Judson Church would decrease, that you would increase here in our midst. Lord, we pray that where we may have begun to, to grow cold, to become distracted, that, Lord, where we, we may have become hypocrites to some degree, that you would call us back to yourself. We know that we have at our disposal something that, that the hypocrites of Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah did not have, and that is that our sins are spoken for once and for all, that we need only turn to you and confess our sins, and we have the promise that we are instantly forgiven, that you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, even of the sin of growing cold, we confess, we repent. We pray that you would give us new appetites, new desires to see you, our King, in your beauty. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.